Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution was adopted on August 2nd, 1870. That was 150 years ago. And the Voting Rights Act was signed into law on August 6, 1965, and that was 55 years ago. Together, these laws have been significant in efforts by African Americans and other racial minorities to become full and active participants in America's democracy. It is always to be remembered that this country's founders did not intend that non-whites were to become citizens because for them and their supporters, this nation was created to benefit people who were designated as whites. Efforts to reverse that intent and mindset have spanned decades and resulted in the loss of lives and the infliction of serious bodily injuries in active and violent efforts to suppress campaigns by African-Americans who fought to register, to vote, and participate in the American democracy at the local, state, and national levels. The success of those empowerment efforts have regularly been challenged, and the struggles to exercise and protect those rights continue today. Tonight, we will discuss the importance and impact of the 15th Amendment and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Joining us for this discussion are two political participation experts, attorney Tomas Lopez, the director of Democracy North Carolina, and Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Political Science Department. So first of all, thanks to each of you for joining us for this discussion. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, at the outset, uh, we definitely have to pay homage to the legacies of Congressman John Lewis and the Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian, both of whom led the fight to obtain recognition of and protection for voting rights and political participation in this country. So my first question to our guests is, what are your reflections on the accomplishments of these two giants in expanding the American democracy? So why don't we start with uh, Professor Hall. Well, thank you, Irvin April. And again, uh, happy to be here and and to be here with my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Tomas. We suffered a great loss over the last uh, couple of weeks with the the, uh, deaths of uh, of the Reverend Dr. Vivian and uh, Representative John Lewis. These are individuals who literally shed their blood uh, in order to um, create the kind of democracy that America says it is. Uh, 
Um, these are people who have shown the fortitude and the courage uh, to carry on the fight. Uh, I heard somebody say as they were looking back at the uh, lives of these individuals that we today drink from wells that we did not dig. And that's certainly the case. We, uh, they are the ones who were the pioneers and actually helped help, help to pave the way and to offer examples of uh, what all of us ought to be doing uh, in this fight. And so it was a great loss, but at the same time, they continue to be great inspirations for the work that we do to try to make America the democracy that it claims it is. Attorney Lopez. I mean, I could say it. I couldn't say it any better in terms of, you know, the the ways in which Representative Lewis, Reverend Vivian were were inspirations, were role models, were everything, you know, that we we hope that if we're ever in that situation, we 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 would want to do do what they did, and you know, to sort of pan the camera back a little bit, you know, what I would point to is you know, and I think our conversation may get into this, right? There are certain, there have been certain flexion points in this country's history where uh, there has been specific legal change that has brought America closer to the ideals that were set forth at the beginning, uh, you know, this country, right? You could point to the Constitution. I would point to the 15th Amendment alongside the 13th and 14th and point to the period, you know, really set in motion by the work of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and, and, you know, many others, right, that the, the civil rights movement was in many ways a manifestation of the promises set forth in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were, you know, enacted, you know, were trying to enact the promises set forth in 1787 and prior to that. And those things, we don't get there without real people putting in their time, putting in their effort, putting their lives on the line. And, and that is a very hard thing, you know, I think, you know, sitting today to even fully wrap our heads around. And, 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 and you mentioned that uh, they put their lives on the line and literally uh, they are regular reminders of exactly what they did. Uh, John Lewis, uh, who was severely beaten many times, yes. uh, including uh, at the uh, Edmund Pettus uh, Bridge in the Bloody Monday, Bloody Sunday uh, episode. And uh, C.T. Vivian, uh, who was physically attacked uh, by uh, law enforcement officers in, uh, in Selma uh, as he took uh, people to the uh, courthouse uh, to, uh, to vote. And uh, so they were literally in the line of fires and they, they, they stood up uh, to uh, those fires and uh, have provided, I think you said, shoulders uh, that we can uh, stand on uh, today. And I guess in a large, large respect, uh, Tomas, uh, the work of uh, Democracy North Carolina flows from uh, those uh, contributions that uh, they made. So just for our audience, can you just kind of remind them of the uh, mission and work of uh, democracy, uh, North Carolina, and what it is that uh, you seek to achieve by your efforts? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's always, there's always a little bit of, 
of, you know, nervousness, right? Kind of putting yourself next to somebody like that. I would, you know, uh, I, what I, democracy North Carolina works to, you know, ultimately, right, build a just and equitable state. And we think that the way that we get there, you know, is by having the lowercase d democracy that we need, right? That where people have meaningful access to the ballot, where people have fair representation, where people have the ability to be a part of their government. And so we're, you know, we are working to protect and advance voting access. Um, we are trying to, especially in the context of the 2020 election, educate voters, mobilize voters, and ensure that voters are protected when they go to the polls. And so that's a lot of work now, right, to ensure, you know, little, seemingly little decisions, right, about sort of where voting happens at the county level, right, but also really big decisions about, you know, what's required when you get to the polls. And so we are involved in grassroots organizing. We're involved in advocacy with our election officials and with our elected officials. Uh, we're involved in uh, litigation as plaintiffs. Um, and we are also, you know, people, we try to sort of know elections inside and out and use that work to both educate the public and, and lead to a, you know, more free, free, fair, accessible, inclusive democracy. Now, Tomas, you mentioned these inflection points and, in, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. And, and one of the points that you made was that it requires real people to push for, for these changes. And, you know, as you kind of describe your organization and the good work that it does and the necessary work that it does, it reminds us that the the job is never done. And so, you know, having the amendments, it, it didn't end there. They, these weren't self-executing amendments. And even these laws that were necessary to ensure that the amendments were uh, were played out are not themselves self-executing. Can, can you just talk a little bit about why it is that you think an organization like it continues to be vitally necessary, notwithstanding the fact that we've got these constitutional amendments and we've got these statutes um, that are supposed to ensure equal access um, and, and equality when it comes to voting and, and all sorts of um, all sorts of things in our country. Right. I, I mean, I think, you know, on an abstract level, right, you know, law obviously matters and law has an expressive function, right? And, and that's that is you know, law sends a message to people. And in fact, you know, in many ways, right, law can, law can send very harmful messages to people, I think, as we've seen in recent years. But uh, any law, good or bad, and I think particularly when we talk about sort of the good laws, you know, that we are trying to advance, right, require enforcement, they require action, and they require accountability. Um, and I think that the, uh, you know, the role of groups like Democracy North Carolina, of civil society as a whole, is to ensure that the law that exists on paper is actually uh, exercised by the people that are charged with enforcing it, that are in charge with implementing it. Um, and when, and then when the law, you know, when the implementation of the law does not live up to the intent of the law, the meaning of the law, or, you know, on a broader level, kind of the need of the public, then, you know, it is the role again of, of the public, um, you know, through civil society, through groups like ours, to change the law and the way it's implemented. Well, you know, in, 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 in line with that, uh, you also need on the part of the people uh, knowledge about the uh, voting 
process and a uh, willingness to uh, participate in uh, in this democracy and 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 just kind of leading in you know back to uh, to Jarvis can, can you kind of talk about uh, what uh, uh, efforts uh, do 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 you engage in at uh, at, at North Carolina Central uh, to help uh, students better understand and appreciate the uh, democracy that uh, we live in and their responsibility uh, to uh, uh, ensure that this democracy is working in the manner that uh, we intend for it to to work. Well, first of all, just as a result of being a political science professor, I teach government and and public policy and how it works and uh, elections and, and and voting behavior and, and and political parties and interest groups and all of that good stuff, you know. But but um, we also try to uh, teach practical politics. We try to provide opportunities for our students to be involved directly in the political process, in the civic engagement uh, process. And uh, because many students, even political science students, um, uh, don't know exactly what they can do in order to have an impact on the political process. Some see voting as a waste of time. Some see uh, voting as being rigged. Um, that is not going to really make a difference. Uh, and what we try to show them is that it can make a difference it, it, uh, 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 because elections have consequences and who, whoever wins, uh, that can make the difference in terms of public policy, uh, in terms of education, healthcare, livable wages, uh, a clean environment, um, uh, voting rights, and, and a number of things. So we always try to make the connection between civic engagement and actual public policy. But also what uh, a um, effort that we've been trying to do, uh, mostly on the undergraduate side, but also working with uh, 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 you folk at the uh, law school and uh, um, and, uh, and in graduate departments, we have started this thing called the Civic Engagement Working Group. And what we are trying to do is, uh, is institutionalize civic engagement at North Carolina Central University. So not just in terms of, uh, of typical voter registration drives and voter education programs uh, and things like that, but also use the curriculum to, um, to produce students who we say we produce. And what I mean by that is to produce students who are civically engaged, who understand the, the political process and regardless to whether they are political science majors or English majors or art history majors or civics or, or, uh, 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 or chemistry majors, they have some sense as to what they could do as citizens uh, to um, uh, affect change in our democracy. And along with that, we hope to do more things in the community too, especially with regard to, uh, with regard to civic education. You know, going back to the uh, vote, uh, 15th Amendment, which was adopted in 1870, uh, we found that having that constitutional provision was not enough uh, to uh, really uh, expand this notion of uh, democracy and to allow for uh, participation 
by uh, particular racial minorities uh, in this uh, in this country. Uh, that uh, resulted in the uh, 1965 uh, Voting Rights uh, Act uh, to cure uh, the uh, limitations that resulted from the uh, uh, 15th Amendment. But let me just raise with with both both of you has 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 the, the Voting Rights Act been enough to uh, put us in a position that uh, we can fully participate in this uh, democratic franchise? Well, I'm happy to start. And, and, and I, I mean, I'll say that it's done a lot. Um, and in particular, it did a lot from 1965 to 2013 when we had the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. So as, as that law was designed, it was, you know, not only a, uh, a, you know, acted as a barrier to bad voting laws, to restrictive voting laws, didn't only create a private right of action for people to bring lawsuits, didn't only create the ability for the federal government to, you know, enforce voting rights through, through the courts, but also uh, created the ability, you know, created this preclearance structure, which uh, folks may be familiar with, right, which provided that there were thousands of jurisdictions that managed elections in one way or another that had to, because of a prior history of discrimination in voting, had to, before they made any changes to their voting rules, needed let, to... Thomas, let me, let me just cut cut you right there for a second, because we're going to come back to you, but I just see uh sign is up that we have to uh, right now, and uh, I apologize for cutting you off uh, like that, but... Uh, uh, this is uh, the Legal Eagle Review, and we're talking about uh, the uh, 15th Amendment to the uh, United States Constitution and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, and we have as our guest, uh, Tomas uh, Lopez of uh, Democracy North Carolina, Professor Jarvis Hall of North Carolina Central University uh, Political Science Department. Uh, we're going to take a break. want you to stay with us as we can continue this uh, very important uh, conversation. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Although the laws that prohibit workplace discrimination are decades old, workplace discrimination still remains a serious issue. Discrimination refers to the unfair treatment of a person based on that person's race, age, sex, nationality, religion, or disability. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a federal law that prohibits employers from discriminating against employees on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. The law generally applies to employers with 15 or more employees, but also extends to colleges, universities, employment agencies, and labor organizations. Title VII forbids discrimination in any aspect of employment. If you feel that you have been discriminated against in your workplace, there are several steps you may take to protect your rights. First, review your company's policy to determine how and where you may report discriminatory practices. Second, keep a personal record of the discriminatory practices. Finally, you may reach out to an attorney or file a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also known as the EEOC. More information is at eeoc.gov. 
Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening. Uh, this evening, we're, we're talking about the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution <clears throat> and the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, Tomas Lopez, who is the uh, Director of Democracy in North Carolina, uh, Jarvis Hall, who is a professor in the uh, North Carolina Central University Political Science Department, are our guests and uh, trying to uh, re-educate you about uh, these two uh, critical parts of, uh, of our law and uh, our uh, responsibility to participate to make this democracy uh, real. When we uh, stop uh, for our break, uh, uh, Attorney uh, uh, Lopez was talking about the importance and impact of the or limitations on the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. So, uh, Tomas, we're going to go back to you and just let you uh, complete uh, your yeah. question. Thank you. I, so, you know, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 remains a really critical statute, right? It prevents dis, you know, discrimination on the basis of race and voting and uh, allows private individuals to bring lawsuits concerning voting rights. It allows the federal government to play an enforcer role, bring its own lawsuits. Um, but as designed, it includes something that is not currently in play, and that is this preclearance regime, which basically prevented uh, jurisdictions that had a history of discriminatory actions in voting from implementing any changes to their voting and election rules un until they were approved by the U.S. Department of Justice or the three-judge federal panel. Uh, what we know is that over the decades from 1965 until 2013, when the implementation of that provision uh, was uh, held invalid by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that there were many cases where uh, bad voting rules were stopped even before being put into place. Because one of the unique challenges of voting rights work is that you've got elections that are run in so many different places at the same time. It is hard to keep track of all the changes that are going on. A second unique challenge is that uh, you know, the right to vote is somewhat different from some other rights in that it has a particular time-bound quality. So if you lose your right to vote ahead of, say, this year's election, you can't get it back after the election. And so there is an extra value that comes in preventive measures, uh, stopping a problem before it starts, because there is really no way to fully repair that situation once the vote is lost. Well, Jarvis, you know, the, 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 one of the limitations on the Voting Rights Act is that it does not uh, promote participation by, by the people. And as a political scientist, uh, you are engaged in that effort uh, at the uh, uh, base level uh, to educate and inform uh, individuals about the uh, voting responsibilities and the powers of uh, the democracy. Uh, how do you address the, uh, or how has the uh, shortcomings of the Voting Rights Act 
been addressed by people in the streets and people in uh, communities and people at the local level who are adamant about uh, promoting and maximizing participation by citizens in uh, in the vote. Well, it's a sort of implied in your question uh, because you have to have people on the ground, you have to have people in the street, uh, and it has to be a sustained kind of thing. Uh, as we know, for those of us who do this kind of work, uh, we know that you can't just engage a person one or two times in order to get them to do something that they might not ordinarily do, such as voting. And uh, you have to engage them, the rule of thumb is from five to seven times uh, to encourage them, one, to register to vote, uh, two, to find out uh, uh, what the election is all about, who the candidates are, what the important issues are, and then three, to actually get out to vote. Now, I think there should be a, a fourth uh, uh, point there too, and that is accountability, that uh, after you've elected these people, then you should uh, uh, monitor what they're doing. You should uh, continuously advocate for uh, your interests, uh, perhaps as an individual, but certainly as a community. And it takes a lot of education um, to um, uh, talk to students, to talk to people in the community, to uh, to to, uh, to demystify the beast. Uh, because for many, the political system is just something they don't understand, is for other folk, is for elites, uh, and, and they don't see the role that they can play. And so one of the things one of the challenges that we have to confront is is to show that uh, um, ordinary people, ordinary grassroots people can be empowered in order to really bring about real change. And voting is just part of it. Uh, the accountability part, the advocacy part is something that we really need to, uh, to emphasize also. You know, Jarvis, your point about uh, that that there there are people, too many folks who don't fully understand why participating in our political system is necessary. And um, it it always makes me think of, you know, knowing our history and, and the detriment uh, when we don't. And so when we think about um, expanding the vote, expanding the franchise. In history, there's always been a backlash when that's happened. So uh, even though the 15th Amendment wasn't quite as strong as it could have been, um, it did expand the franchise to, you know, the formerly enslaved uh, men, yeah. black men. Uh, and then you had Reconstruction, right? Uh, then you've got the Civil Rights Act. Uh, then you've got the election of Barack Obama. And then we've got the situation where we see renewed efforts to suppress the vote, which resulted directly from uh, the Shelby County decision that Tomas has been talking about. So can you talk a little bit about the, the need to make sure that uh, your students and, and just the community in general, uh, the need to understand the history and how that might galvanize people maybe to be more involved in the process? Uh, you make an important point uh, because just as you said, it's almost a, a, a cyclical kind of thing. Uh, we have an advancement of voting rights and then we have the backlash. It's inevitable uh, because people are looking for that political advantage and, uh, and how can they um, suppress or disadvantage those who they think would be their political adversaries. And 
Um, and what in the era we are in now is voter suppression. And so if we make the argument that uh, they're trying to take something away from you, then that tends to resonate uh, quite a bit. And so that's a part of the argument that we try to make that when, you, when we look at voter suppression uh, efforts, uh, especially here in North Carolina, unfortunately, uh, we have been the, uh, the poster child for, for, uh, for voter suppression, but at the same time for resisting that too, we have been the poster child. Um, um, with people like you guys and, um, and Democracy North Carolina and, um, and other groups, um, but we just have to show that one, the vote is so important because they work so hard to take it away from you. And so it must have some value. And, uh, and people sort of understand that argument. And, uh, and when you start taking things away from folk and you see the impact that that can have, that does tend to resonate quite a bit, especially with young people, but also other folk in the community. Well, you know, you, you talk about voter suppression, which is a, uh, a real problem. Uh, historically, it has been a problem, and presently, it is a problem. So, Jamas, can you kind of talk about what democracy North Carolina is doing or has done uh, to address the uh, efforts toward uh, voter suppression here in the state? There are a few things I would point to, you know, over the years, right? I mean, one is, you know, we have been, you know, one really sort of large thing we try to do every election year and that we are, you know, looking at, you know, that we'll be doing this year is uh, trying to assist voters and monitor the situation at the polls in real time. So working with partners on the ground and throughout the state, uh, you know, on uh, having volunteers at polling locations where we will assist voters when they have issues as they're walking out of the polling place, say, hey, were you able to vote? And if you weren't, here's a phone number you can call where there are you know, trained attorneys standing by to help people assist, help assist where there is a problem and where there are systemic problems. For us, you know, sitting in a room together at an office, being able to say, okay, we've heard at XYZ polling place that the line is going out the door or that the machines are broken or that a poll worker is asking people for ID when they shouldn't. So let's get on the phone with the officials that are actually running things and see if we can get that fixed. And that is one of the sort of the important functions, you know, sort of providing real-time assistance to voters. I think, you know, stepping back a little bit, one thing that we do try to do is um, make sure that our, um, our state election officials, our county, our county election officials have the perspectives of the general public in shaping election rules and policies, especially at the local level. You know, one of the things happening right now at the county level is that there are decisions being made about uh, where voting is gonna happen, especially during the early voting period, whether it'll be available on weekends. And so we work to organize people to make sure that they have a say in that process and that that public input is reflected in the outcome. And so we're trying to get involved in different ways throughout the voting process, not just as people cast ballots, but well before. And as Jarvis mentioned, as well after as well, you know, to say, you know, let's make, let's follow up after elections to see, hey, how committed are our officials to ensuring that we've got meaningful voting access, not just six weeks before election day, but, you know, right after so that we can make sure they've got the system that we really want. Well, why, why, why is it that uh, we have to guard against these uh, elected officials? 
as the ones who are promoting this uh, the, these notions of voter suppression? Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, one is that um, elected officials have a self-interest in either the status quo or going backwards. Uh, their self-interest, the, the main self-interest of any elected official is election or re-election. And so if there's anything that jeopardizes that, if they have control over election laws and ordinances and statutes, they're going to do whatever they can in order to make sure that uh, those laws uh, do not hurt their ability to pursue their primary self-interest, which is re-election. And so uh, uh, um, they can hide behind uh, notions of voter fraud, which is a fraud in and of itself, uh, to say that we are trying to protect our democracy. But uh, in essence, what they're trying to do is to protect themselves and to protect uh, their incumbency and to make sure that we don't have a flood of new voters, that the electorate stays basically the same the way it was when they were elected, and that uh, the electorate does not change to reflect the uh, kind of demographic change that we see going on. That means more young people, more people of color, um, people who for various reasons have been outside the process and they begin to enter the process. People who are in elected office now want to suppress that so they can continue to uh, occupy elected office. And you know, Irv's question and Jarvis, your, your response raises this question of why it is that these elected officials and, and local um, administrators and the states have so much control when it comes to federal elections. Um, and, and why there's this inconsistency. And do we need some federal oversight beyond just the Voting Rights Act? Because, you know, we've seen recently where because of decisions by, you know, states and, and local administrators that people have not been able to fully exercise their right to vote. So they haven't received absentee ballots. The polling places haven't uh, been available. And when we see the groups uh, or the, the people who are most adversely affected, typically they're people of color. Um, Tomas, can you talk about the lack of federal oversight um, from a constitutional perspective? And, and should we be thinking about maybe even amending the constitution so that we do have more consistency? Sure, I mean, I think there are sort of a, a few things worth noting when we look at the structure that we've got, right? The constitution sets forth uh, an elections clause, which says that, you know, Congress, you know, has jurisdiction over federal elections, right? An emphasis on federal elections. And what that's meant in practice is that basically federal legislation has allowed, uh, you know, pursuant to the elections clause, right, where there are certain federal standards created, they generally get applied in every election because of, you know, sort of the breadth of federal elections. And that's prior, of course, to sort of the independent enforcement powers of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The, you also have in the Constitution a Qualifications Clause, which says that the, the states shall set qualifications for voting. And so many of the legal conflicts that have existed when it comes to voting, you know, concern sort of where is this line between 
the elections clause in terms of the you know, federal government's ability to regulate the elections and the qualifications clause. I think where what that's led to is we many of us in the election space talk about we've got 50 states and 50 different elections and 50 different election systems. Uh, while there are you know, there are, are some positives to that. Um, in many ways, right, it is much more of a problem, especially when it comes to voting access. Because of the ways you don't have consistent standards for ensuring, for example, that everybody's getting some minimum level of voting access. Uh, you know, I think we've got potential, uh, you know, I would point to uh, HR1, a House bill, a U.S. House bill that passed uh, some time ago, as a really good model for the ways in which a federal statute could set some new national standards for voting that could really serve people. Uh, in terms of constitutional need, I mean, one potential need, you know, would be, you know, kind of locking in some sort of affirmative right to vote as opposed to kind of negative protections against, uh, you know, the denial or abridgment of, of voting. Um, but I also think, you know, there are, there are certainly sort of valid questions about, you know, where, where is our energy best spent, in, at least in the near term. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. Uh, we are talking with uh, Tomas uh, Lopez of the Democracy uh, North Carolina and uh, Jarvis Hall, who's a professor, uh, political science professor at North Carolina Central University, about uh, the uh, 15th Amendment and the 1965 Voting Rights Act and uh, their impact on uh, African-Americans and uh, Latinos and racial minorities in the state. We're gonna take our break uh, right now, I want you to uh, continue to uh, stay with us as we come back to uh, conclude uh, this discussion. So we'll be right back. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Tomas Lopez, who is the executive director of Democracy North Carolina, and Professor Jarvis Hall, who is with the NCCU Political Science Department. And we've been talking about the importance of the vote in this country. So we have the 15th Amendment, the 150th year anniversary, and we've got the Voting Rights Act. This year marks the 55th anniversary of that very important piece of legislation. Uh, Tomas, right before the break, you were explaining how we have, you know, every state has its own uh, voting procedures, and so there's a lot of inconsistency. 
Um, we've got the November election just right around the corner. What are your thoughts about and what can we prepare for in terms of voting in North Carolina? I think there are a few things that folks should be aware of. And I realize I've been saying that throughout this conversation. There are a few things, which leads to a lot of things. But from a practical level, it's important to understand that the, um, the current public health crisis is going to have some impact on elections this fall. Uh, one is I think there are fewer resources for elections, um, although I think there's been some important appropriations that, that are that go toward filling those gaps. Second is, uh, and probably this is the, this will be the most visible for a lot of people, there's going to be a really dramatic, in, it looks like we're, we're on pace for a really dramatic increase in absentee by mail voting in North Carolina, uh, which is traditionally not a common form of voting in this state. Um, third is that we are, uh, you know, there are going to be challenges to staging in-person voting in particular to make sure we have as many poll workers as are needed to staff early voting locations and election day voting voting sites. Uh, and fourth is that, um, you know, voter registration efforts uh, have been, uh, you know, I think hobbled by, uh, by the pandemic. You know, you lose the ability to kind of go out, knock on doors, you know, you lose those festivals, those, you know, music events, all that stuff where you can almost see a voter registration table. Um, you know, so I, I think, these are all big unknowns, right? And the biggest unknown of all is what the pandemic conditions are going to look like when in-person voting starts in October uh, and going into November. Um, for people who are interested, you know, who are who are eligible North Carolina voters trying to figure out, you know, what can I do to cast a ballot this fall? Um, the most important thing to know is that um, absentee by mail voting is available to every eligible North Carolina voter. Uh, there are some specific procedures that have to be followed if you're going to do that. So uh, now some of this is is at issue in court right now, but you know as of now you need to submit a specific request form. That request form will be available online on or by September 1st. You then have to have your form, your ballot signed by a witness. Uh, just one witness instead of two, the law was changed. Uh, and you've got to make sure that you're following closely the, the instructions about where to sign the, your ballot, where to sign your envelope. Uh, you know, Democracy North Carolina runs an informational website, ncvoter.org, which uh, tries to answer questions about how this stuff works. Um, but that is available to every North Carolina voter. And one thing we want to make sure is that if people want to use that option, that they're able to navigate that especially because it's so unfamiliar to so many folks. Um, In-person voting will remain available, but uh, you know, we also wanna make sure that people are able to do so safely. And so we're engaged in some advocacy work around that. You know, there, there, there's a lot of fear uh, out there in the uh, communities about uh, what's going to happen from some people in power uh, with, uh, with these elections. So. Jarvis, can you kind of talk a little bit about those fears and what uh, what is being done or what can be done to um, minimize uh, disruptive forces that uh, might want to uh, uh, intrude on the voting process? Are you talking about voter intimidation and, and stuff? Um, well, one, to... Uh, uh, to monitor uh, the voting process 
to make sure, especially uh, with regard to uh, in-person voting, both during the early voting period as well as on election day, uh, making sure that um, there, 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 there's no voter intimidation, and if there is, to report it to the authorities to make sure that that, that, that is not going on. Hopefully, the authorities themselves are not <laughs> engaged in the voter intimidation. Um, so we uh, have to um, um, uh, educate citizens so they become citizens uh, uh, monitors themselves um, to make sure that they report, uh, as I said, not only to the authorities, but to organizations like uh, Democracy North Carolina uh, so that they can get the, uh, uh, the wheels turning to make sure that uh, um, these kinds of things are not going on. And I think a lot of folk would be surprised to know that voter intimidation is still very much a problem, uh, that it, it is a form of voter suppression also. Um, and, and as I sort of alluded uh, uh, to earlier, uh, in some cases, the, the authorities themselves, sometimes by their very presence, may uh, uh, have a tendency to uh, intimidate voters and um, and create a situation where they are uh, hesitant to, uh, to participate, especially going uh, directly to the polls during the early voting uh, period and on election day. So, so just have to, uh, just have to um, have to be vigilant and um, uh, with regard to that. Yeah. And, you know, another big problem, we've got this direct intimidation, but we also have misinformation, which is a big problem as well. So sometimes you can suppress the vote by just sending out information that's not quite accurate. And this goes to Tomas's um, point about one of the emphasis of his organization is, is education. And Tomas, as you were talking about the absentee ballots and that people have to focus closely follow the instructions and that this is really unfamiliar to most people. Um, the concern is, of course, that uh, if there's any irregularity, that the ballots will be thrown out. And so if the instructions aren't followed to a T, and when we think about, you know, voter suppression or we think about um, ballots being thrown out, uh, that has a that benefits one particular party over the other, and so can you talk about uh, what we can do? Um, going to your website, of course, and sharing that information in in terms of being informed. But what what else can we do to make sure that misinformation doesn't prevent people from being able to? cast a ballot in a meaningful way. So casting a ballot that will in fact be counted. I think one thing that, one step that, that people can do uh, is to stay up to date. And to be honest, this might be a little, um, this might be a little bit uh, counterintuitive, but um, you know, right now at this point, right, you can't cast a ballot. You can't, actually vote right now. Absentee ballots become available in September. In-person voting begins middle October and obviously election day is November 3rd. Uh, so it's probably best to check in on what the rules look like a little closer to when you think you're actually going to vote because you know, you're going to see a lot of headlines in the news about, well, there's this lawsuit and there's that lawsuit and this thing's going on. 
but at that practical level of what do I need to know in order to cast that ballot, however I'm choosing to do so, whether that is in person, whether that is via mail, let me check in closer to that, t- to that date, to that time, to make sure I have the, you know, the information I need that's as accurate as possible. I would, you know, I think I would suggest to people, if you are sure that you want to vote absentee, right, I think there are obviously concerns like the ones you raised about some of the back-end procedures around absentee ballots, around making sure that every ballot is counted. That's something that certainly is in the category of things that I'm that I'm worried about, right? But, um, you know, if, if you believe this is how you want to cast your ballot, you want to make sure that you're able to do that, um, you know, there is probably some value to doing so earlier than later, right? I think we have administrative concerns that if there's a big rush of people who request absentee by mail ballots in the last couple of weeks of October, you've got to worry about getting that ballot in time, turning it around, getting back to your, getting it back to your election official in time. You know, obviously every person who requests an absentee ballot should be able to get one, send it back, have it count. But again, on that practical level, if you are a hundred percent sure that that's what you want to do, and you feel like you know what you need to know, know in order to cast the ballot and make whatever decisions you want to make on that ballot, you know, there is, I think there is some value to doing so sooner rather than later. You know, just to follow up on that, I, I think one of the things that people can do right now is to uh, go to the uh, State Board of Election uh, webpage to, uh, to ensure that they are registered uh, because we do have purging. Uh, that occurs uh, from time to time. So everyone should uh, just uh, go uh, to the uh, uh, website to see if they are in fact uh, uh, registered. And if not, then to cure uh, that, uh, that problem. The other thing, you know, when you talk about uh, 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 mail, uh, voting by mail or absentee uh, balloting is uh, everybody should uh, make sure that they go out and buy uh, four or five stamps uh, so that they can have them available so they can put on the uh, return envelope to uh, get the uh, uh, the uh, ballot back uh, to the uh, uh, to the polling site. Uh, but one one other thing, though, Tomas and, and, and Jarvis, that you want to speak to is this notion of election protection uh, that will uh, be in place uh, during the early voting period and certainly on election day. So uh, what can people expect uh, with respect to uh, voting uh, protection efforts, I mean, election protection efforts? I'll let Tomas respond to that because I know his organization is uh, doing a number of things. And 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 what uh, I will say this is, is that we're trying to follow the lead of, of organizations like uh, a Democracy in North Carolina in terms of uh, uh, election protection and, and trying to mobilize our students to be both uh, poll workers as well as uh, poll monitors uh, to uh, make sure that people's uh, right to cast a ballot and to have it counted, uh, uh, to make sure that, sure that those things are protected. Yeah, I would, I would point to a couple of things. First is uh, I think many of us who are engaged in elections are concerned about making sure that our polling sites are as staffed as possible for the fall. And so if you have at all an interest in potentially becoming a poll worker, uh, the North Carolina State Board of Elections has established a portal 
for people who to express their interests, you can find that at ncsbe.gov. Uh, and uh, you will your information will be passed along from the State Board of Elections to your County Board of Elections. You under current law, you do have to be a resident of the county where you are a poll worker. And so, uh, you know, if you live in Durham, you can't be a, a poll worker in, in Wake or Orange. Um, but having said that, uh, you know, I think it is, you know, it's an important thing if you think you have at all an interest and a capacity to do so to get involved in that. Second is to uh, volunteer with Democracy North Carolina as a vote protector, part of our election protection program, nonpartisan. Uh, volunteers who will be stationed outside of polling places this fall to assist voters who have issues and help us capture issues that are happening on a systemic basis. And uh, you can visit our website, democracync.org, for more information about that. Uh, but we will also be scaling that program as it goes out later into the summer and into the fall. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to add, this is uh, with COVID, the challenges for civic engagement work is, is uh is really uh, immense this election cycle, um, and especially with uh, communities of color. I've heard, I've heard some people say that uh, uh, some polling shows that uh, communities of color are less likely to engage in um, in mail-in balloting uh, uh, for fear that that ballot won't count. That they would prefer to vote in the quote unquote uh, a traditional way, which would be in person. And then there's the issue of um, is it safe? Um, it, is it actually safe to uh, vote in person? So that's why uh, voter education this time uh, has to include not just a discussion of the candidates and the issues, but also how your ballot uh, will should be protected and will be protected but that you have to play an active role in that. And, you know, so Jarvis, as you were talking about the, the safety aspect of it, right? So people are, are worried about voting in person. And then when we think about the African-American community, the black community, uh, we are more susceptible to um, adverse right. reactions to COVID. So we've got that heightened level of, uh, of susceptibility. And so that adds to the legit, very legitimate fear. Um, Tomas, if someone is concerned about maybe not, they want to vote in person, but they're mm -hmm. concerned that by the time November 3rd rolls around or November rolls around and they can do early voting that um, there may be a stay at home order in place or it's just not safe to go out. Can people request uh, in September an absentee VAP ballot and then decide later to vote in person, what's the timing yes, of the you, absentee you, ballot? You can, you can request an absentee ballot and then vote in person. The, the, and it's, and while this isn't required, it's recommended that if you do do that and you decide to request and vote in person, what you should do is take your absentee ballot with you so that election officials can take it, can mark it as returned, you know, but we mark it as, you know, so, hey, this person voted in person to sort of proper term they use is spoiled, but we won't get into that. And so that, you know, there's not kind of any confusion in the process. Um, you know, again, we have a 17 day early voting period. I think that's going to be especially important this year for encouraging social distancing. Early voting is the most popular form of voting in North Carolina in a typical election cycle. 
In 2016, the general election, 61% of North Carolinians voted early and in person. Um, one tip would be, uh, again, if you are of the category of person that, you know, you know you're going to vote, you feel fairly confident in sort of how you're going to cast your ballot and you want to vote early and in person, doing so earlier in the early voting period is uh, you know, probably advisable, right? The busiest days of early voting are toward the end. Um, the last Saturday before early voting is a really important day for voting to be available, but is can also be a particularly crowded one. And so, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you think that you're going to vote early, you maybe you've resolved to sort of do that again, kind of at a practical level, it should be available. It should be available to everybody whenever they want to do it in that window. But again, making you know, individual advice I would give, um, you know, again, is to, to hew toward earlier. All right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you both for sharing your knowledge with us. We're out of time, unfortunately, but we'd like to thank attorney Tomas Lopez, who is the executive director of Democracy North Carolina, and Professor Jarvis Hall, who is with the NCCU Political Science Department. And as always, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening and listening to us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and safe.